you have to have a wide swath of life experiences. That is, you have to have lived on the streets. You have to have been ripped off. You have to have had your butt beat. You have to have been down. You have to have seen the senior sides of life. And I did that. <laughs> that was that that was my uh, my my younger years. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a true thought leader when it comes to vetting. This man is one of the world's leading experts when it comes to vetting people and getting to the truth of who they are and their capabilities. He's done this work in terms of recruiting for some of the biggest companies in the world. He has also been a patriot who served his country after 9-11. And he is an author of one of the most interesting books I have read in the last 20 or so years called Willing Accomplices. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Kent Schlisby. Welcome to the show, Kent. Thanks a lot, Nikki. It's great to be with you. It's Clisby like Frisbee. Clisby like Frisbee. Thank you for correcting me on that. I, now, yeah. now I know how to say it right. Apologies it's for messing up. It's the story it of my life. You have a name like that, you learn how to correct people. <laughs> Kent Clisby like Frisbee. Yeah. Okay. So, Kent, man, you know, I found out about you when uh, I, I came across your book, started to read your book. Um, it's a fascinating book. I got to tell you, it's a fascinating book. And once I read a, a good chunk of it, I knew I had to have you on my show. So, first of all, thank you for being on the show. And the person listening to my show tends to be an entrepreneur, a business person. And the reason they listen to the show is because they want to learn from you as our guest expert about how you came across your particular expertise, and how you use that expertise to be successful in your life and in your business. And before they can truly open themselves up to you, they need to get to know you. How'd you get to be the great Kent Clisby? Tell us your backstory. Wow, this, this may take a while. I'll, I'll go to the summarized version. Sounds uh, good. It, it's, it's pretty unique. I grew up uh, in, in a pretty dysfunctional family. Uh, my father was a um, one of the early hippies, I guess. I was born in 1960. He got into the counterculture sort of movement. He had a wife and three kids, and in the in the early 60s, he started getting involved in radical politics. Um, I, I've never really been able to figure out how he got into it, but he did. In effect, I grew up my early, 
early days from birth until 10 when he abandoned the family as a red diaper baby. That is, he was not quite a communist, but he was on the the far end of the radical spectrum at the expense of his family, at the expense of his kids. Uh, Very... Very, very typical of of radicals. Um, and they they love humanity, but individual humans and their families don't mean that much to them. So I, I grew up singing Pete Seeger songs, hearing about strikes, Joe Hill, all the all all of the the legends of anti normal American organizations. And then after after my dad left, you know, I grew up without without a father, as a, raised by a single mother in very poor circumstances in in the South. And I ended up getting to the point where it was either die, go to prison, or join the military. And I, I made the right choice at, at twenty, and I I joined the Air Force. That really is what changed my life, got me on the right track, started on the right track, helped me understand some of my skills and abilities, which were one was uh, languages uh, and cultures. Uh, another was, um, was, was the, the international world. And so what I ended up doing was in, in, in the Air Force, I became a linguist. I got to study Vietnamese at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey. Fantastic experience. Here I was, a redneck kid out of the sand hills of North Carolina. It, so a, a big deal to me was, was getting to go to Raleigh to go shopping at the mall for Christmas. You know, that was huge. And now suddenly here I am living in an apartment two blocks off of Cannery Row in Monterey, uh, studying Vietnamese language at, the, at DLI. Uh, totally changed my life, opened up my eyes. Uh, I, I became really good at Vietnamese, fell in love with Asia, the Asian sort of way of life, the, the Asian philosophy, if you will, and threw myself into my job. Ended up at the Phili- in the Philippines for three years, listening to the Vietnamese communists. Uh, that which that's why the Air Force taught me Vietnamese was to to listen to the Vietnamese communists from our our base in the Philippines. Again, I was able to to kind of burrow into the Asian culture. Really uh, increased my my appreciation of Asia and and the whole, uh, that part of the world. At the same time, I I realized I'm really not a good soldier. I always say that the best thing I ever did was join the the military. The second best was get out. Mm. So the military put me on the right track, helped me realize my skills, helped me uh, get pointed in the right direction, and it was sort of a, a jump start to my life. Moved on and became uh, went went back to school, got my degrees in linguistics, teaching English as a second language, uh, and, and Southeast Asian studies, 
And that started a career as uh, in, in refugee services. I, I ended up working with Southeast Asian refugees, uh, doing culture, teaching English as a second language. Uh, I, I was worked in the re- in, in the refugee camp uh, in Bataan the, in the Philippines. And from there, I ended up uh, teaching English in, in the Middle East. I, I taught in a university in the middle of Saudi Arabia, worked in Italy, worked in the UK. And all of this opened up to me the, the whole international, uh, I, I got experience in, in multiple areas of the world, working on my own, working as a contractor for various companies and, uh, and, and organizations, Asia, in Asia, in, in Europe, in the, in the Middle East. And as an entrepreneur, you know, I, I was realizing I, I'm not cut out to be a bureaucrat. I am always thinking about, um, you know, how, how to, how can I help people and how can I increase my own family's well-being by helping others? So I ended up back came, coming back to the States to do graduate school. The goal was to get a, an MBA in international business. Unfortunately, by this time, I was, uh, I was in my 30s, uh, early 30s, was married and had a kid. And it was I was not the profile that high-level MBA programs are looking for. Uh, so I, I ended up in a lower-level MBA program and learned very quickly that there weren't a lot of opportunities for people with uh, MBAs from these lower level kind of programs. So I had to feed my family and uh, started looking around for for something else that I could apply my my skills and and, uh, experience in. And since I had been in intelligence earlier, doing signals intelligence that listening to the Vietnamese, I had the clearances required. And so I started applying to to intelligence community agencies while I was finishing up graduate school. And uh, as I was about halfway through my degree in instructional design, which I had moved to after business, I, I got an offer from the CIA. So I ended up becoming a an operations officer in the CIA, uh, specializing in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, counterterrorism, counterintelligence. I worked a lot of different targets. From there, from from that training and experience that I got in the CIA, I learned I was a really good recruiter, and I was really good at building relationships and. Really, what you do as a recruiter is solve people's problems. So I, I, I learned that I was really good at, at understanding people's problems slash issues and helping them to solve them. And I, I went out and I was very successful in the metrics that count. Uh, but I also learned pretty quickly that the the CIA is just another government bureaucracy. And as a government bureaucracy, they have little to no concern about excellence. It's all about fitting into the bureaucracy, fitting the mold, 
uh, going along to get along. And that is just against my my nature. So I was uh, getting to a point that either I if I was to take another uh, another tour overseas with with the agency, then I would end up staying in. If I had stayed in, I, I would would have been in spiritual trouble, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> uh, so I at, the, at that time, dot com was exploding. And if if you were around during that time, it was all I worked the talk in dot was com, the, brother. I worked in dot com. Yeah, yeah. So it was the new economy, right? New economy, e-commerce, everything's gonna change. VC money was everywhere. And I looked around, did it did a survey and realized, you know, they they need these VCs are funding. Like my, my first clients as a headhunter, which is what I ended up doing is I, I left. I jumped out without a parachute. I took a 100 percent commission job as a headhunter and and, and uh, my clients were all in in the computational linguistics area. And they were they were I mean, kids. They were 20, 24, 25 year old Ph.D. students from Stanford, Carnegie Mellon and a couple other schools who had won the VC lottery. They had they had convinced venture capitalists to to fund their businesses. So with my background in linguistics, my recruiting skills, I was able to pitch myself to these to computational linguistics focused companies, which what what these the, the tech that these companies were working on ended up becoming things like Siri, uh, Google itself, the search engines and, and they, you know, like my 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 clients were all gobbled up by the by the big uh, big companies, big tech companies. But so anyway, I I, I jumped out, jumped jumped from the the government the government tit into the rough and tumble world of of dot com and VCs, and and I I worked for a company uh, a headhunting company that that had a totally different specialty than mine, but I carved out the niche for myself in their company uh, within six months of, of uh, starting with them. I was 80% of their revenue and they, they had no appreciation for that. They were burning through my money, giving parties and things like that, like nobody's business. So after six months, I, I said, thanks, guys, because all they had given me was a phone and, and, uh, and an Internet connection. Uh, back then, we, we sat in the office, but they they didn't give me any business. I had to build completely build my own business. So after six months and, and seeing them using my money, the money that I had brought in, I said, thanks, guys, and, and went out on my own. I became the the pretty much the only headhunter in the world that uh, focused on computational linguistics. Wall Street Journal contacted cool. me and, and I, I was a I was a source for for an article they did about uh, linguistics and the demand for linguists back then. And, and after that, pretty much I, I did not have to do marketing. Uh, uh, my clients as well as candidates were coming to me. 
So I was able to ride that uh, was was quite successful until 9-11. On 9-11, by that time, dot-com was crashing. My Some of my, my clients had had gone uh, public and my, the candidates that, who I had placed with them uh, were overnight millionaires when they went public. One of my clients went set the record for one day percentage increase. However, by the time just before 9-11, all of that was fading. They were all crashing. I, I had a couple clients, but when 9-11 came, I, I could not sit idly by. Uh, one of the reasons I had gotten out of the agency, besides not being cut out to be a bureaucrat, um, was because we didn't really have a mission. It, it was the Clinton Clinton presidency. Al Gore was running for president uh, as I was getting out, and he was talking about environmental intelligence. I have no idea what what that was conceived to be, but it yeah. was not something that I wanted to be involved in. There was not a real mission during those years. On 9-12, we had a mission. We immediately had a mission and we had need for, the, the agency had need for experienced operators like myself. So I was able to go back as a contractor, as working as an a, a counterterrorism operations officer. I ended up uh, working throughout Southeast Asia I ran an operation in the Philippines that uh, rescued a pair of American missionaries, the Burnhams. Unfortunately, Mr. Burnham died in that in the rescue operation, but Mrs. Burnham uh, was successfully brought home. Uh, I worked uh, throughout Southeast Asia, Indonesia, after the Bali bombings, uh, Malaysia and, and other places worked in Kuwait as we were getting ready to invade Iraq, uh, worked in, in Africa and, and other places. So I was able to apply my skill set where, where it was needed in a great sort of almost unbelievable coming together of, uh, of needs and, and resources that could meet those needs. But after not many years, uh, it was clear that the agency was, after the 9-11 push for solutions and pretty much it, they, they were ready to, to do what needed to be done. But after four or five years of that, uh, it was clear that we were back to the, the same old bureaucracy. And I, at that point, I, I moved out of, uh, out of the, the, um, government contracting uh, in intelligence. And, and I started doing my, one of my other skill sets, which is instructional design, training, learning, solutions, uh, organizational development. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so. As, as I said, it's a long story, but uh, th those are the high points. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> so here's the other thing. I'm fascinated by the fact that you have been 
somebody who's gone all around the world. Your patriotism had you stand up and want to make a bigger difference for your country, especially when 9-11 happened. First of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for going to the Air Force. Thank you for going to the agency. And thank you for answering the call after 9-11. But this show is about thought leaders and thought leadership. And what has had me see you as a thought leader is I read your book and I read some of the articles you wrote and some of the articles written about you. And you developed an incredible ability to vet people, to really like place the right person in the right role and not really have anybody come back to you and say, no, 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 this was the wrong guy. And, you know, there's also stories about you in the media being able to smell out, you know, the BS really effectively. So that's some real thought leadership there, you know, and it's it's a skill set, in my opinion, that you could probably monetize to a way greater extent than you have. And we can definitely talk about that online and offline in this conversation. But can you talk to me about that? How did that become apparent to you? So th- this, I, I started to develop the those skills. I, well, well, first, I guess the key is that to 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 have the skills to assess others' credibility, which is what what I've come to call it is credibility assessment vetting. Uh, it is captures Love the it. same <laughs> the same uh, idea, but you have to have a wide swath of life experiences. That is, you have to have lived on the streets. You have to have been ripped off. You have to have had your butt beat. You have to have been down. You have to have seen the senior sides of life. And I did that. <laughs> that was that that was my uh my my younger years. I I, I I was in you know, like I said I was if I had not joined the military I'd have been dead or in jail. Yep. So with that starting with that foundation, in, in effect, that's a different culture. Those, those the culture of the streets is a different culture from say academic culture or bureaucratic culture. And you you find in something like the CIA is it's very a very monolithic culture. They hire people for looking at the same um, the same profile. That is, they all have master's degrees from from uh, high level universities, and they all have done a semester abroad in Barcelona or something like that. Of course, I, I'm I'm exaggerating, but generally speaking, and most of them lack that grounding in the streets and that understanding of, of, of street culture. And what the way I was able to then take that American base and then apply it in, in, in other cultures, which is what I did as, as an operations officer in the CIA is that I, I had to be able to apply the credibility assessment, the vetting skills in other cultures. That's really, really difficult. 
But the reason I was successful in it, in, in being able to do that in the CIA, which is where I honed those skills, was because I had, before I joined the CIA, not only did I have the American street culture, I had gone and lived on my own in a, a wide swath, a, diff, a big variety of different cultures. I had learned their languages and, and immersed myself in their cultures, which is very different from the typical agency bureaucrat. The agency bureaucrat doesn't have the street experience, and then they go and they learn a language, and then they go into a the, the expatriate communities of other cultures, the diplomatic communities, if you will, which has nothing to do with the street culture of, of the local, uh, of of that country. And they don't have the, the, the basis, the foundation to understand others. Mm. So I'm, I'm giving that negative example to tell you to, to a contrast to my example, which is I did. I, not only did I, ha- did I have experience in multiple countries, six, eight countries on the street, living, working for locals, working with locals, learning their language. I I always say squatting in the alley, eating fish with my hands. Uh, That's that's a very Southeast Asian kind of thing. Uh, I, I had that experience and therefore I understood or had a, a, a good beginning of understandings of these foreign cultures, which made me able to sniff out bullshit when it came from a foreigner. And I, I got very, very good at it. So when I, when I became a headhunter, I, had, I was able to continue building on that same skill set of credibility assessment, of vetting, of smelling bullshit. And as you mentioned, I gave a 100% guarantee to my clients, my headhunting clients, that the the people that they hired from me, I I would provide them usually with, with about three candidates who were ready, willing, and able to do the job and who I had vetted as being ready, willing, and able. I gave my clients a 100% guarantee. If in six months, in the first six months, if this person does not work out, then I'll give you a, a refund of the fees that you paid me. And I never had to, never had to honor that guarantee. And, and I only give a six month guarantee because in six months, somebody's, somebody can totally change. Uh, they can, they, there's, there's many things that can change, but at, oh, yeah. in that first six months, I I'll guarantee you that they are who I say they are and who, who they say they are. So that, that's, that's sort of a, an, an overview of, of how and why I was able to give that guarantee because I was, I was very, very good at assessing people and vetting them. Okay. I really, I really like what you said, and there's a lot here for us to unpack, okay? So, <laughs> okay. So let's unpack it. All so, right. So 
Number one is you talked about how being effective at your job in the CIA meant that you had to be good at solving problems. I really like that because I teach business owners that I work with that that is essentially why you're in business. You solve problems. Yeah. And I say this to you, Kent Clisby like Frisbee, that <laughs> for you with your skill set to make seven to eight figures a year, which I see you as a seven to eight figure a year earner, what you would have to do, what we would have to do is we'd have to help you do two things. One is we'd have to help you find a group of people who have the problems that you solve better than anybody. And we would have to understand who those people are, their ability to pay, and understand their motivation to solve those problems. Because if a person's motivation is less than an eight out of 10, they're not worth your time, right? Mainly because they're not motivated to solve the problem, which means they won't buy. An undisturbed prospect will not buy. If they don't believe they have a problem, they're not going to buy. So you understood that in the world of uh, you know, being an agent very, very well, which is why you were good at recruiting, <laughs> right? Yeah. But in business, you're rec- you're still recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> Only you're recruiting people who pay you <laughs> directly. And yeah. the whole concept of finding out what their problems are, which is a skill set you really, really have. And I don't think that skill set is easy for people to learn. And that's a skill set you can take advantage. We help you find a group of people that are ready to have that problem solved. They're going to pay and they're going to pay top dollar. And I'll tell you why they pay top dollar. They pay top dollar because they're really motivated to solve the problem. And you are going to show them that you can solve the problem in a way nobody else can, like you did when you gave those guarantees when you were a headhunter. Right. Yep. So the second thing you said was you learned through life experience. And it's very interesting. But the fellow who taught me about thought leadership is a man named Matt Church. I've never met Matt Church. I have uh, met his business partner over the phone uh, and over Skype because I've interviewed him for my show. But Matt Church says that to be a thought leader, You need to go into your life and you need to go through your life experiences. It's not about your title or what you did last. It's about what the heck is it that your life experiences taught you. And the methodology that Matt teaches, which we use to help our clients, is we help them go through all that. And then we help them take that life experience and turn it into uh, between three and seven areas they can really work in. And then create an intellectual property in there and create um, create a sales pitch, if you will, based on solving the problem. And the whole problem-solving thing that you did as an agent was you found out their problem, you really helped them feel the problem, and then you offered them a solution. And you being the only one who offered the solution made them very grateful to you and had you be able to get what you wanted. Sales Yep. And making a lot of money in business is all based on the same thing. <laughs> so it's actually exactly the same thing. You, yeah. have, the, you have the skill set to do that. So that's that. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's what I did in headhunting. There, there's two pieces to headhunting business. And one is business development, which is finding clients, that is companies who are willing to pay you. So you, have, you go through the whole business development problem discovery 
with them and then convincing them that you're the one who can solve their problems, that is find the right people. And then you have the the search piece, which is finding the candidates who, who are, are qualified and then helping them to realize that their problems will be solved by working with your with your client company. So yeah, I'm, that's that's what I did. I I monetized that there for for several years. Beautiful. So as a thought leader, we'd have you take that and monetize it at like ten to fifty x what you did as a headhunter because they didn't pay enough. Yeah. So. I'll give you an example. I had a client who was a fitness trainer, right? Everybody and their brother's a fitness trainer these days, right? This guy made the whopping sum of $25 an hour, and he'd lost his driver's license, so he had to bus it everywhere. Think about that. (laughs) Crazy, right? Like, I mean, he had to bus it. He didn't get paid for his bus time, and he got paid $25 an hour. He had seven clients. He made less than $18,000 a year. And I love this guy, but he was not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? Just a nice guy, but, you know. So, well, anyways, long story short is, um, and he would take anybody with a, with a pulse, just anybody with a pulse. He, you know, if, if he could try to sell you, he would. He met a guy who was a, after he started working with us, we said, no, you can't do that. You got to stand out, blah, blah, blah. And he tried to stand out with a few different groups that didn't work. Then he met a guy who was a um, Paralympic athlete. He'd lost his leg as a, as a child uh, in an accident, right? And um, he trained this guy. And then he's like, well, wait a minute, you know, this was kind of neat. Maybe I could train more people with missing limbs. That really worked for him. It took him four or five tries to get that. He started working with people with missing limbs. He went from seven clients to 400, from 18,000 to 1.2 million in a year. Cool. I know. Now, this, you might think to yourself, well, that guy got lucky. He didn't get lucky. He worked his butt off until he figured this out, right? And that was that was the key thing. And I look at you and I go, man, this guy's got vetting skills. So, okay, you can do it for headhunting. But, I mean, there's got to be other groups of people who could learn from you. They could, like, I mean, vetting can, I was just talking to another client today. She, mm-hmm. She rented space in a clinic from somebody. She didn't vet that person at all, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a terrible decision. She overpaid. She was poorly treated. For two and a half years, she went through hell until she finally got out of there. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with her and I said, hey, I was talking about your book, actually. Tell her to go buy your book. You should buy this guy's book. And she says, well, you know, I'm not interested in history. And she says, no, it's not about history. It's about learning how to vet. If you learn how to vet, you won't make that same mistake. She goes, no, you know what? You're right. I'm going to buy the book. I turned her from not wanting to buy your book to wanting to buy your book. Now, mm-hmm. that's $17 or $20 or whatever the heck the price is for your book. But um, I tell you what, and I just, again, I'm not saying this is the right way to go. I mean, this is just what I came up with today. But yeah, but in the process, we could figure this out. Like, if there were other groups of people and you had, for example, I don't know, a four-week online course that you sold for $997 or $1,597, mm-hmm. you just might find a group of people who will be willing to pay for that, <laughs> you know, because yeah. – 
because the pain of them not vetting people or doing a credibility assessment properly has cost them tens of thousands of dollars in untold heartache. That's what we call, in the parlance of our work, a motivated buyer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I was interested. It's a great idea. My, 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 uh, the, the, the skill, I, I'm, I'm very aware of my strengths and weaknesses and the, the strength that I'm lacking to do that is the marketing piece. Yeah. That's not hard. That's not hard. You know what the hardest thing is in this business? The hardest thing is thinking through the problem and discovering that there's somebody who has a problem that what you do solves. That's the hardest part. You know what the second hardest yeah, part not is? For me. Well, I, I, know. I can do that. Good. But I just can't get the word out to them. Congratulations. That's, that's what I've Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm about to show you how to turn that into seven to eight figures a year. Because I like you. <laughs> you know? That's so the Great. second hardest part is asking for the sale. Most people in this space are deathly afraid because they don't want to come across slimy. You know what I mean? Oh my God, they're going to think I'm a bad person if I like it's. I'm telling you, it's the second hardest thing. So I kind of figure you don't have that problem. You can ask. I don't have that problem. So the third hardest thing is what you said: how to get in front of the right people. Now that actually isn't as hard as you think. Yeah. Not nearly as hard as you think, but you don't currently have a skill set in it. So to you, it seems insurmountable, but it's not insurmountable. It's actually very surmountable. Um, yeah. And, uh, I know that. <laughs> I know that people are good at it. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's why you can you can get help with that. You can find ways. Now, most people in 2020 think the only way I should be doing this is online. I need to go online. I need to go on Facebook, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. You can, and I actually think it's a good idea to do that, but the first place that we teach everyone to go to in the world of thought leadership is your own network. In your own network are the right clients that you haven't even thought of yet, but if you go through every single person in your network, and most people won't do this because it's tedious and time-consuming as all get out, right? And it is tedious and time-consuming as all get out. They don't want to go through and have the conversations, but if they are, if they do go through and have the conversations and they're willing to ask, you know, a few questions, they will find in their network are people they never thought of who are ready to buy. And then here's the other more interesting thing. If you do this right, there's people in your network who know the people that will buy too. That alone can get you to a million dollars a year without ever needing to spend the dime on Facebook or Instagram or any of that kind of advertising. But that's tedious and hard work tedious and hard work. You know, like you know, like what you had to do when you actually vetted a client to make sure that they were the right person? It's kind of that level of tedium. Because you got to call. Every day, you got to be willing to have five to 10 to 15 conversations with people. Hey, it's Kent. How are you? Blah, 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 blah. And then you have to have your list of questions that you ask. And then the list of questions is, hey, are you? do you have this problem, this problem, this problem? And unless it's all green lights, you get off the phone, right? I mean, you make the next call. I mean, it's not, again, people hate doing that. They hate, hate doing that, but it's actually not that hard to do. When I showed this kid how to do it, because he never went online, he went from 18,000 to 1.2 million on the strength of phone calls to people. Now put that in your head. It's pretty crazy. Interesting. It is very interesting. It is very yeah. interesting. <laughs> I know. They, they, so, you see, I really like your skill set because to me, 
reading your book, I read it not just from the point of view of I love, you know, what he's teaching me, you know, about history and all that, which was fascinating and great and wonderful. But I love what you're teaching me about um, credibility assessment and vetting. I'm interested in understanding that more and better for myself. So if you don't mind, since you agreed to come on my show, I kind of think you must have in some way vetted me. Can we kind of go through a high-level process of how you went about doing that? Well, the first thing I do is I ask you. <laughs> you you contacted me uh, from a phone number and a blank email. First thing I do is say, dude, who are you? <laughs> All right. Good point. That's, that's what you ask. So you find out what their story is. And then – before going any further, you asked for for some kind of credentials. I asked you, you told me you have a show. I asked you for the website. I asked you for uh, background on you. And you gave me that. And that allows me to, that that's the first step to vetting. For, well, the, the first step is our interaction and me making a making a, a judgment that, that you are credible and you, you do appear to be who you say you are. And the next step is, is following up on, in effect, internet searches and, and finding, do you have a show? Do you have a, a website? Are you on LinkedIn? Are, is there other information about you out there? And that's, that's about the level that that I needed to go to get this far. Fair enough. Okay. So you did all that. You figured out, okay, this guy seems legit. So let's do the interview. Exactly. And there's not, because there's really no downside for me, uh, I don't need to go any deeper. If you were to say, oh, and can you lend me a hundred bucks? Then we (laughs) might go a little bit deeper. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, I understand. I understand. I understand. So what are the signs that someone should look for in learning about vetting for somebody, you know, not being all that they say they are? Uh, I mean, you need to put two and two together. That is, if somebody says that I have a radio show, I have a podcast, and there is no website. Or there is, there are no, there, there are no results when you search for him. Mm. That's, that, that's, that, that is kind of basically it. You, you need to use your experience. You need to have experience of the world first to know that if someone has a podcast, they're going to have a website or some kind of online, um, online presence. If if you're vetting a your your buddy who's the the workout dude, he probably won't have a website. So the vetting might be getting references. Who who have you worked for? Where have you worked for a person? Have you have personal clients? You work at a gym, and then if I needed to vet him, uh, I would I would call call or contact either his personal clients or the gym gyms that he said that he he had had a presence at it's sort of to, to me it's it's instinct but it is um it's it's evaluating someone's story based evaluating their story against reality 
um, to 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 see do these do these two things match? I like it. I like it. I'm learning something from this. Okay, so let's move. Gen- to- as generally speaking, of course. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So let's move it into a two or three particular areas. Okay. So let's look at like three things almost everybody's going to come up against at some point in their life. One is dating. The other is um, if you're looking to, uh, I don't know, buy something like a high ticket item from somebody kind of thing that I sell, kind of thing you're probably going to end up selling more up. And the third thing is, and I think, you know, anybody in a free society ought ought to definitely pay attention to this, vetting a political candidate or a political party. What are the things... What are the, the ways in which you go about thinking through how to do that? And I don't want you to give away all your secrets because obviously it's the kind of thing you're going to be selling. But, but you know, give us like at least a sense of how someone could go about doing that. Of, of which one of those examples? All of, them, all of them. Just high level. So, I mean, if for, for social contacts, if it's somebody that you're going to uh, potentially become intimate with, then you you need to, I mean, I, I guess nowadays it seems like a lot of introductions are done online, not through a network. You know, if you look at uh, if you look at traditionally, a lot of the vetting is done for you. That is, you you met people through personal networks. So nowadays, if, if you're opening yourself to complete strangers on the internet, uh, you really should do pretty extensive vetting. I mean, before I would, you know, before I would suggest to someone that they meet a stranger in person, I, I would, um, want to look into their background. I mean, almost do a background check, you know, there, there are many, many horror stories of of people uh, pay the ultimate price for not do, not doing a, a some kind of vetting, some kind of assessment of the strangers they're meeting. So there's there's ways you can do that that are relatively inexpensive, but at the very least, uh, start googling. Um, looking, finding, do they have presences uh, where, where they should have? If they claim to be a doctor, are they, you know, do they have a, a uh, an office? Do they have uh, privileges at the local hospital? It just, it, it all depends on, on the, the person, but, you know, what their profile is. But there, there's a lot of assessment and vetting that you can do personally with it. It doesn't cost you anything. If you want to spend a little money, you can get background checks done as well. What were the other areas? Uh, looking to buy something from somebody, like a high ticket thing. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to buy, you know, I'll, I'll only take them one at a time. <laughs> if yeah, you're going to yeah. buy a, a high ticket item, the internet has opened up so much for us nowadays. Uh, it's for, for any kind of purchase, it's, you're looking at reviews. You, you do a little bit of, of background uh, on the internet and then look at what other people think. And of course you discount because you, there's no making everybody happy. There's going to be people who are uh, 
who, who are dissatisfied with the best product ever uh, because it wasn't it's, it's not meant for them, but they somehow got their hands on it and did a review. But looking at other people's ideas about it, um, looking at what experts say, I mean, the old consumer reports kind of uh, kind of approach, get get the experts view and, and discount that if if you want to. But it it gives you some insights, some relatively, um, r- relatively neutral insights. And the the last one was your your last example. yeah yeah uh, politician political party. How do you vet them? Yeah, so that's that's a really sticky wicket because uh, <laughs> all politicians lie. And <laughs> no kidding. You know, I, I guess it boils down to: Are they who they say they are? And, and it's funny you should mention this because I, I wrote an article on uh, in Newsmax when Obama was running for president the first time, and it was exactly about vetting Obama. And it, it's it's interesting that, um, for example, I, I I worked as a consular officer, and in in working as a consular officer, what what your job is 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 to vet foreigners who are asking permission to come to the United States. That's one of the jobs you do. It's granting a visa. Yeah. A visa is permission to enter the country. It's really permission to ask permission to enter the country. Uh, so when when you vet someone for a visa, you ask them for their documents. You can, as as a consular officer, I can ask a, a, an applicant for any document, anything, anything. I, I want to see your kindergarten report card if it will help you to if in your in your mind, in my mind, as I'm making the decision, I decide that I need to see that kindergarten report card to to help me determine whether this. What you're determining for a visa applicant is will they return to their home country? And if if I think that document or piece of information will help me to make that decision, then I can ask for it. And if they refuse to, to provide it, I can use that as, as evidence that they are uh, unwilling to participate in, in helping me make the decision. And obviously, that's going to very likely be a negative decision. So that that's that's sort of the the way I looked at at Obama as he was being vetted for uh, as a candidate for president. At providing your birth certificate is not that big a deal, and when it turned into a month and months and months long back and forth and recriminations and you're racist because you asked for it or you bring it up uh, as, as a vetter, as a credibility assessment expert, there's huge alarms going off saying, you know, what's, why? why? Why don't you want to provide this quite simple uh, piece of of evidence uh, that 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 uh, that backs up your life story. So 
documents, listening to them, evaluating their their past promises against their 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 uh, actual actions, which that's that's a very very high standard nowadays. Because I don't sure. know if any politician follows up on their promises, but it's it's just just like I would eva- uh, a vet a candidate to be a computational linguist. I'd do the same thing for a politician. Is he who he says he is? Does he have the credentials he says he does? Can he? perform as as he he promises and just put it all together and form a holistic contextual decision which which is that that's my my credibility assessment approach is I, I call it holistic contextual credibility assessment that is you look at the whole thing there's no one piece of information or one, piece of evidence that uh, that that gives you the answer. There's no magic bullet. There's no technical solution. You can't plug somebody into a machine and strap them up and it tells you the truth. Ain't no such thing. So I, I take a holistic contextual approach. Kent, I really like what you've been saying about this. I like the term holistic contextual approach. Uh, you're truly a thought leader in this space. So <laughs> how do people find out about you and your work? So tell us. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, 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 I have a couple of websites. My personal business website is myname.com, and that is kentclisby.com. And my book that you read and recommend uh, has a website, and that's willingaccomplices.com. You can you can Bing me. Uh, that is, search, use the Bing search engine, which is I, or DuckDuckGo. Uh, I don't I used, recommend. Google. I use DuckDuckGo. I use DuckDuckGo. Uh, and just 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 search on my name, and you'll get both of those, both the Willing Accomplices and KentClisby.com. So, well, I'll tell you, um, we'll make sure we put those in the show notes. And I can I can say this. Your book, Willing Accomplices, is the first book I've read in 30-plus years that really woke something up inside me. So I, I 100% recommend this book. In fact, uh, I'm likely going to be buying several copies uh, once the world opens up from the pandemic and uh, handing them out. I might contact you to see if I can get a uh, signed copy. Or a of bunch course. of signed copies. I'll buy them off you and we'll send them to my clients. I think it's a fantastic book. Uh, listener, definitely buy Willing Accomplices. Uh, if you are, uh, like history and if you like about learning from history so we don't repeat the same mistakes, it's a very powerful, important book. In it, Kent outlines a lot of fascinating things, but you'll also learn about his uh, methodology on vetting and on finding out, you know, if people are who they say they are. It's fascinating. And it's a book that you can't put down once you start reading it. Honestly, it's like a thriller or a, or a whodunit. It's just a fantastic book. So willingaccomplices.com. 
and kentclisby.com. Those are some fantastic books. And make sure you do that. So, Kent, we end off each and every single one of our episodes by asking you as our guest expert for three pieces of advice that we call expert action steps. These are your best three pieces of advice for my listener as a, as, as a business person, as a human being, to make their business, make their life better. What say you? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> that's a, 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 a great way to wrap it up. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I've, I've got two kids. And and I uh, in, in raising my kids, I came up with sort of uh, um, maybe mnemonics or uh, little bits of advice that I would constantly feed them. And I think it applies. A couple of these apply to everybody. And one of them is every night uh, after they go to bed and they're they're drifting off to sleep, I'd whisper in their ear, work hard study hard and pray to God and you can do anything. You can be anything you want to be. So that's one. The other is every day as I drop them off at school, I, I had pounded this uh, mnemonic into them. F-C-A-R-R. And that stands for focus concentrate, attitude, respect, and responsibility. And they knew I, I would, as we're pulling up, I'd say F-C-A-R-R, what's F? And we'd have a, a quick discussion about focus that, that day. And then they'd go on to their, go out to, to, to school. Uh, and the next day I'd say F-C-A-R-R, what's C? And we'd have a quick discussion about concentrate. And I guess maybe uh, the, the the last piece, and, and <laughs> these are all uh, uh, grist that I, I plan to put in a book one day about raising kids, but it's actually just as as applicable to, to everyone's lives. So so the the other piece is there's there's five facets to life, and you need to balance those five facets. You need to develop experience and skills uh, in all of them to become a, a whole person and the best person that you can be. And those five facets are artistic, academic, social, physical, and spiritual. So as, as my kids were growing up, they they always had to have something going on in all those five facets of life. And so that's my third nugget is I suggest everyone think about don't don't get too um, over specialized. Don't don't get too absorbed by any one of those five facets of life, but balance yourself and you'll be the best you can be. Wow, these are some of the best expert action steps I've ever heard. They are rock star, bro. Well done. <laughs> I wrote them down. I'm going to take them to my kids, actually. I think this is yeah, awesome. Well, it, it is. I, I do have a book in draft that's, that's getting read. That those are really the, the kind of uh, key parts of it. But they, you're, you're welcome to. I hope they work. Oh, man, I think my kids are going to love these. Okay, so, so listener. Kent Clisby, like Frisbee, is the real deal. And you can you can tell he's the real deal by listening to him. 
And you might be thinking to yourself, hey, Nikki, how do I find out what my skill set is? How do I take my skill set and monetize it properly so I have the biggest impact, the biggest amount of influence, as well as income? And I'm really glad, listener, that you thought to ask that question and have me voice it for you. Because the best way for you to do that is you need to go to my website, ecircleacademy.com, and you need to take advantage of three phenomenal, absolutely free resources there. So resource number one is watch my free webinar masterclass. That is a hour-long masterclass on how to take your genius and monetize it. It's free. Do it. Just Take advantage of it ASAP. Take lots of notes because it's going to help you have a blueprint for how to properly monetize your expertise and make the money you you should be making. Number two is I've got a free report called, you know, six steps to growing your uh, coaching slash consulting slash expert business. It's free. It's 28 pages. It's beautifully well-written and Everything there is actionable. So take advantage of that. And then finally, the third one is set up a free success call. And a success call is like a discovery call. It's like a strategy call. It's all about helping you create the blueprint for how to be successful. And again, this is free. There is no obligation for any of this. You do not need to commit to anything. I do not believe in uh, pushing people to do stuff but I want you to take advantage of these three resources because what it's going to do is it's going to give you the tools you need to take your business from stuck to growing, take your life from tragic to magic and do it. Don't wait. Don't delay. Do it right now. And if you like this episode, share it with at least 10 people and get them to subscribe and Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave me a five-star review and say really, really good things about this because you know that if you do this, this show is going to continue to go from strength to strength and you want it to go from strength to strength because you know this is the best dang show out there for bringing you the top thought leaders in the world and teaching you what you need to do to take your life and business to the next level. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.